This is What's Growing On, a show where we dig up the latest dirt on Ontario horticulture production, helping producers navigate best management practices and taste the sweet success of a quality crop. I'm Christy Greg McGuffin. Join me as we talk to those in the field of fruit, vegetables, and specialty crops to find out what's really growing on. Welcome to the first episode of the 2021 growing season. I'll admit, it's a little later in the month of May for releasing an episode, but I'm sure many listening would agree this season came in with a bit of a bang and caught me pretty off guard. The unseasonably warm weather in April really got things moving a couple weeks ahead of normal for some regions of Ontario, so perennial crops broke dormancy, early planting started going in, and then... Mother Nature started playing with our already fragile states by having night after night of freezing temperatures. Plus, along with that, long stretches without rain. And it's only May. (laughs) But as usual, the resilience of the agriculture community is strong and things are just carrying on. So today's episode... We're catering to those sleep-deprived folks out there that have spent nights monitoring temperatures or have been busy planting or living in the tractor. We've got a series of short clips from various specialists that I'm calling the Horticulture Hot Seat Marathon. So no major focus required. It's just two minutes at a time. Up first, we revisit the basics of IPM with one of OMAFRA's summer research assistants, Allie Collingwood. Now, it's not just because I'm biased as an IPM specialist that I keep coming back to this topic. This this ever-evolving, really dynamic concept of pest management, it should be revisited often and reassessed to be sure that your on-farm IPM toolbox is as full as it can be. So this mental checklist that Ali walks us through, consider it an opportunity to think about where the strengths and gaps lie within your program. Following Allie, we hear from OMAFRA's plant pathologist Katie Goldenhar on a rather suiting topic given the pandemic. Katie will walk us through the numerous tests available for plant virus detection, what they mean, how they work, to help make sense of things when submitting crop samples for diagnostics. Next, Erica DeBrower, OMAFRA's tree fruit specialist, addresses the difficulties of apple thinning following some major weather events like the frost that we've had this spring. And last up, it's yours truly. Yep, I'm finally sitting myself down in the hot seat to address the question, are all mildews equal? You may be familiar with downy mildew or powder mildew on your crop, but how similar are these pathogens and Could mistaking the two be rather costly? So, let's crank up the heat and get this horticulture hot seat marathon going. As always, if you're looking for up-to-date information about horticulture crops grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs provided in the show notes.
Integrated Pest Management, commonly referred to as IPM, is a pest control strategy that utilizes thresholds to inform management practices. There are many benefits to this system, including limiting the chances for pest establishment, decreasing environmental impacts, and reducing the likelihood of pest populations establishing pesticide resistance. The two thresholds most used in IPM are the economic threshold and economic injury level. Using these thresholds as a reference, this system uses a bottom-up approach to manage pest populations. The system uses a diversified approach to pest management by utilizing cultural controls, then biological and mechanical controls, and finally implementing chemical controls. Cultural control relies on strategies such as site selection, cultivar choice, and good nutrient management to limit the occurrence of pest infestations. Once the crop has been planted, biological controls, such as attracting or introducing the natural enemies of the pest, are used to combat pest populations. Also referred to as beneficials, these natural enemies can include predatory insects, parasites, pathogens, or nematodes that will target the pests that are causing harm to the crop. Mechanical controls are also used to minimize the presence of pests through strategies such as physically removing the pests, mulching, or using barriers such as screens and nets to protect the crop. Finally, chemical control is implemented only when pest populations are above the economic threshold and pesticides are necessary to knock back the population before the economic injury level is reached. There are five basic components to the IPM system that are all important to ensure that pest management is effective. The first step is identification. This involves knowing what pests may be targeting your crop and understanding important ecological information about the species, such as natural enemies and critical life stages. The next step is monitoring. This is a very important stage of the IPM system as it allows you to know what is happening in the field and record the trends in pest populations to inform management. Next is the establishment of economic thresholds, which are important to inform management strategies and outline when it is time to apply chemical controls to the crop. The economic thresholds are different for each crop-pest interaction, so it's important to use the information gathered in the previous two steps to inform the thresholds. The fourth step is the methods of control. Using the established thresholds and the monitoring information gathered, this step involves the implementation of pest control methods to limit the overall damage to the crop caused by pests. Finally, it is important to evaluate the system as a whole and follow up on what strategies worked well for you and your farming operation. You are listening to Ali Collingwood, Research Assistant for Horticulture Crops with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. As we're living through a pandemic caused by a highly infectious virus, you may have heard about testing for viruses more than you'd like. Implant pathology diagnostics are often adopted by the medical community, and we may get a benefit from advancements of testing for viruses due to COVID-19. But if you're not a virologist like me and you're sending in samples for a viral test for your crop, you may have your head spinning about hearing about the different tests that are available. So let's look at them here and talk about their benefits and limitations. Since the first detection of tobacco mosaic virus in 1886, researchers have been identifying viruses and discovering easier, faster, and cheaper ways to test for them. The main diagnostic methods used by diagnostic labs today target the coat proteins and genomic RNA of the viruses. The main methods are ELISA, PCR, qPCR, and whole genome sequencing. 
ELISA stands for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, and it targets the viral proteins, often the coat proteins, that are distinct to a virus. This test relies on antibodies that have been generated and are specific to the target, and then when the virus is present, there's a colored reaction. This is a highly robust test and a test that can be done in the lab or in the field using amino strips developed for specific viruses. This test often does not result in false positives. Unfortunately, this test is less sensitive than molecular methods and does require the commercialization of antibodies to do this testing, but if this is available for specific viruses, it's a good test. PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction and has been used for over three decades in plant pathology diagnostics. It takes small segments of DNA and amplifies them so that they can be detected. In the case of viruses, they only have RNA, so the first step is to generate a copy of the RNA into DNA. Primers, small strands of DNA, are used to select the target region for amplification and can be customized to be as long as the target genome is available and they don't need to be relied on the commercial availability for selected primers, such as you do with antibodies. However, this test is typically less robust and can result in more false positives. The final one is whole genome sequencing, which is quite complicated, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's an emerging technology that's highly specific. It looks at the whole genome of the pathogen or the microbe that you're trying to detect. The cost of the equipment has been prohibitively high, but it has been significantly lowered in the past few years, making it more and more of an option for plant diagnostics that growers can use. And because it works on the whole genome, there's a very low risk of a false positive. If you want to know more details on plant viruses or disease diagnostics, you can contact your local lab or you can contact myself, Katie Goldenharp, with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Many thanks to Katie Goldenhar, plant pathologist for horticulture crops with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Apple growth staging is variable throughout the province, but full bloom is upon us. That means thinning season is about to start. Though there may be frost damage within your orchard, a light frost event of 30% should provide enough for a good crop. If frost damage is greater than 50%, growers should keep a close eye on the fruit set period following petal fall. And if injury is greater than 60%, thinning decisions will be more difficult to make. When observing frost damage in Simcoe, roughly 25% of the king blooms were damaged in Brookfield Gala. There were also frost damage to spur leaves, meaning chemical thinners could result in greater thinning. Frost may also impair photosynthesis and the stress caused by reduced carbohydrate supply may also accentuate thinning. Throughout the orchard, there may be variability in frost damage. Take into account elevation and airflow and test chemical thinner rates in sections of the orchard that were not as affected by frost. There may be variability within the tree itself. There may be a reduced crop in the lower portion of the tree and therefore early chemical thinner applications could be applied to the top and middle portion of trees. With some king bloom impacted and some damage to lateral spurs, it may be better to wait until fruit sizes differ within the cluster once fruit set is more apparent. Several days after bloom has occurred, size differences may become more apparent. Changes in pollination timing can show up in fruitlet sizes after a few hours as the post-bloom period progresses. 
be aware that thinners would have to be applied before the largest fruitlet exceeds the size range for the fruitlet thinning, which is usually between 14 and 15 millimeters. Ultimately, applying thinners when the crop is unevenly set is good practice as single fruitlets are much tougher to remove from the canopy in comparison to clusters of three to five as there is competition within the group. Overall, things that you should consider Take frost damage data throughout your orchard in different blocks. Be restrictive in your chemical thinning early on, but utilize the nibble thinning method throughout the season. Chemical thinners can be stronger when leaves are damaged by frost in fruitlets with reduced seed counts. Hand thinning may be necessary to remove fruit damage by frost early on in bloom. And remember that only 5 to 10% of flowers are needed to set a full commercial crop. You are listening to Erica DeBrower, tree fruit specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Affairs. A really common question to get this time of year is how to handle mildew, or that fuzzy growth on developing leaves. This could refer to either downy or powdery mildew. And while they share related names, that's really where the similarities end. Downy and powdery mildew are actually very different diseases with different management strategies, and it's possible that mistaking the two can be quite costly. Downy and powdery mildew are common to a wide variety of fruit, vegetables, and even some field crops. They tend, though, to be relatively specific attacking only one or a few closely related crops. So, for example, the downy mildew of basil will not affect cucurbits, and vice versa. Or the powdery mildew of apples is not the same as the powdery mildew of grapes. Then, to complicate things further, some crops are affected by both a powdery mildew and a downy mildew. Although downy mildews are often thought of as fungal diseases, the pathogens involved are actually water molds, like Phytophthora or Pythium, and more closely related to certain algae. Downy mildews can only infect if free water is present on the leaf surface, which is why these diseases often become worse with rainy weather and, in some crops, don't even occur in dry years. Infections in most crops lead to angular, yellowish, or olive-green lesions on the upper surface of the leaves, and a white gray, purple, or a dark sporulation on the lower leaf surface. Now, this sporulation's not always present, and it's most easily observed when those leaf surfaces are wet or in the early morning before the spores are blown off the plant. In any case, after about one to three weeks, the affected leaves, they'll die and they'll fall off the plant. Now, powdery mildew, on the other hand, can be caused by various species of fungi, and it's really favored by moderate temperatures and high humidity. Free water is not required for infection, so spread of disease can actually occur even without rainy days. It's not uncommon to see powdery mildew escapes in fields where fungicide application intervals have been extended during conditions that are not necessarily conducive to infection for many other common pathogens, especially those that need that leaf wetness for infection and germination. 
So powdery mildew causes a white or a gray felt-like patch of fungal growth. It's most commonly on the upper leaf surface, but there are some exceptions to this, like apple, strawberry, and pepper powdery mildew, where growth's often initiated on the lower surface. Or cucumber powdery mildew, which forms on both the, the upper and lower leaf surfaces. Symptoms start out as roughly circular patches of white growth, but eventually the entire leaf surface can become uniformly covered with this fungus. After several weeks, the leaves continue to weaken and eventually turn yellow and die, but this progress is usually slower than downy mildew. As well, powdery mildew species both grow and sporulate on the leaf surface, while downy mildew grows inside the leaf tissue, with only the spores produced on the leaf surface. So due to the systemic nature, downy mildews are often more devastating and are much harder to control than their powdery mildew counterparts. So accurate diagnosis is really essential for successful management. Even to the trained eye, disease manifestation can be variable, and both pathogens can be present on the same plant at the same time. So where confirmation is not definitive, sampling for disease diagnostics is certainly important, whether that's through your consultant, an ag rep, or submitted to a diagnostic lab. Like most diseases, there's cultural strategies that can be used to reduce inoculum and prevent the spread of both downy and powdery mildew. So firstly, start with clean stock, whether that's seed, transplant, or nursery material. And try, if possible, to choose cultivars that are less susceptible to the disease that's most prevalent or damaging on your farm. When planting, ensure wide plant spaces or with perennial crops, think of pruning to avoid a dense canopy with limited airflow. As well, prevent the buildup of canopy moisture from overwatering or the use of overhead irrigation. When it comes to watering, trying to water earlier in the day will really allow for adequate drying times. It's really important with both of these diseases to scout frequently and carefully for the development of symptoms, and remember with that to look on the underside of leaves. And where you can, remove and destroy infected material. In some cases, removing the first infected leaves and stems will actually reduce inoculum and delay the onset of severe symptoms. When it comes to using chemical controls, be sure to practice sound resistance management strategies. Both downy and powdery mildew are very prone to resistance development, so minimize risk wherever possible with practices like product rotation from different chemical groups, tank mixing with protectant fungicides where permitted, and so on. Since powdery mildew grows on the leaf surface, contact fungicides like sulfur or copper can be effective against this disease, especially during earlier or low to moderate infections. However, excessive use of copper can cause damage to the soil microflora, and in some cases, like cucurbits, copper can even be phytotoxic. For more severe powdery mildew infections, or for downy mildew management, where the pathogen grows within the leaf, fungicides with systemic activity should be incorporated. And additionally, it's important to remember that downy and powdery mildew are caused by different species on different crops. So management strategies that worked on one crop may not work on another.
You are listening to me, Christy Greg McGuffin, Horticulture IPM Specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Thanks for tuning into the episode today. I'm Christy Greg McGuffin for the What's Grown On podcast. For more information on horticulture grown in Ontario, check out the links to our fruit, vegetable, and specialty crop blogs in the show notes. Music from this episode is the track Aspire from Scott Holmes. Now I'll be back soon with an all-new episode of What's Grown On, but in the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a topic you'd like to see covered, please send an email to onhortcrops at gmail.com. That's O-N, hortcrops at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.